you know, I'm like one of those dolls with like a string in the back that you pull out and then I say like 14 different catchphrases. Power to Live More with Joe Dodds. Welcome to the Power to Live More podcast, all about productivity, organization, well-being, energy and resilience. I'm Jo Dodds and I started this show to enable interesting people to share their stories about how they use their power to live more and by that I mean to do the stuff that they want to do more than the stuff that they need to or should do. It's about creating a life for yourself where you have the energy, health and space to be happy and fulfilled, spending your time as you'd like, whether that be at work, home or somewhere else entirely. That's your choice. Hello, my name is Ellie Dodds and I'm co-presenter and today, Joe's interviewing Madison Campbell. Madison approached us to come on the podcast via LinkedIn. Joe loved her energetic style, and here she is. Madison Campbell is a young sexual assault advocate and technological innovator, hoping to revolutionise the ways in which sexual assault is handled on a holistic scale. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Leader Health Company, formerly known as Me Too Kits Company. Back to the studio. Today I'm interviewing Madison Campbell of Leader Health Company. Welcome Madison, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So start by telling us who you are, what you do and crucially where you do it. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm usually based in New York City but COVID happened so myself and my significant other um, drove across country to California. So now I'm in California right now in Palm Springs, which by the way, is a really great way to test your relationship is driving cross country with your significant other. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so um, I'm based out here in California. Um, Like I said, my name is Madison Campbell. I'm the CEO of Lita Health. And what Lita Health does is focus around sexual assault survivors and providing care for them um, in their time of need. And so what we are doing is creating the first ever at-home sexual assault evidence collection kit. So sexual assault survivors do not need to go to the hospital if they can't, and they have access to resources within the comfort of their own home instead of having to leave the house, which, you know, in the era of COVID sometimes is impossible. Wow. That sounds like such a worthwhile thing to be doing aside from anything, whether we're talking business or or life or anything so I'm really interested to know where this has come from it's I think you're the first person I've spoken to who's doing anything of of the kind so um clearly not not the norm um and I always ask my guests or I usually ask my guests you know what did you want to do when you left school and is this what you imagined you'd be doing and and I'm guessing that that probably wasn't so where has this come from what why do you do what you do yeah so, so I'll backtrack. So when I was in school, I studied Epstein-Barr virus, which is commonly known as mononucleosis. Mm-hmm. Um, my background was in epidemiology, studying public health. And I was a very odd duck in that when I studied Epstein-Barr virus, I was studying it also not in like the earth and like the inhabitants of the earth, but I was studying it in manned missions to Mars 
which is a crazy subject when you think about it. My research was like space viruses, <laughs> which is very far off from what I currently do. So, you know, I, I had predicted in the research I was doing that on a manned mission to Mars, uh, the inhabitants, you know, whether it was six people or a hundred people or whomever, you know, end up going over there would end up getting Epstein-Barr virus um, in a commercial manned space mission. Uh, you know, while this seems really crazy, and it was really crazy kind of back when I started in 2016, 2017, uh, recently there was a Netflix show that just came on. It was with Hilary Swank. It's called Away. And Midway, uh, and, and they, you know, talk about going to Mars, right, in the show. Midway into the season, you know, it's 2020 now, they get Epstein-Barr virus. which. <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny because, you know, when I would tell people about what I was doing um, years ago, they were like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, that's kind of, kind of a weird thing for you to say. And now it's, you know, appearing in um, television yeah. shows, which is really interesting. So um, weird on so many levels in the fact that when I asked you, you know, where this all started, I would never have expected that answer. So, so yes, weird from that point of view, weird, as you say, that uh, you're, your future has become the current, I guess, from, from that sort of part of your life. So yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it's, it's, I was talking to a good friend of mine yesterday and, and he was saying, whoever writes your biography, Madison, is going to be very confused. Um, because, you know, I went from space epidemiology all the way to, you know, doing work around sexual assault and, you know, very nonchalantly, like the reason why I did work around sexual assault is because when I was in college, I was sexually assaulted, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, what really led me into kind of this is my own experience, which tends to, you know, be the guiding reason why a lot of people enter, you know, their businesses or create, you know, whatever they end up doing is because something personal kind of happened to them and they, you know, wanted to address it and they wanted to address it in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and yet, not everyone does that. As you say, the the people do, and um, this you know it seems very sort of logical. And of course, that's what people would do in terms of of starting a business, find a problem, solve it, and 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 here we go. But a lot of people start businesses, I don't know, because they've seen something that interest them and they think they'll start doing it themselves or or they they go through training i don't know to be a plumber or something and then they go off and run their own business as a plumber but you know it is still not everybody who finds an issue and then creates a business from it <laughs> yeah, it, takes, it takes a certain type of crazy person to, <laughs> to take their trauma and make it into a business for sure yeah, um, yeah for sure <laughs> and so Okay, and, and at any stage, if I ask you a question that doesn't feel appropriate and you don't want to answer, then you know, obviously, that, that that's fine. D did you did you do this as a way of helping you through your own trauma? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that we like to talk about is what does justice mean for you, and what it means. My definition is probably a lot different than your definition or, you know, uh, someone else in your life's definition or my friend's definition. Mm -hmm. And for me, justice was not necessarily getting redemption in a court of law. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, putting the person who did this to me 
um, away for a very long time. It was, you know, it was making sure that for the rest of my life that any other woman that goes through what I went through mm-hmm. has the ability to go and see their type of. And so that's mine. You know, this is how I want to, you know, take care of my trauma. This is how I want to move forward with my life. I acknowledge that I'm a very crazy person, right? That, you know, in order to talk about your trauma every single day in business meetings, I mean, you know, to investors all that time, it it takes a very specific person to do that. Mm. But but so, you know, one day a woman who goes through this doesn't have to, you know, and they don't have to start a company to fix it. It's already been fixed for them. Yes. Yeah. So talk us through how, how it came about. So the, the experience happened that you, the sort of tra- traumatic situation happened. How did that then transform into this business? So I was actually um, sexually assisted when I studied abroad at University of Edinburgh. So I was in the UK at the time. Um, Yeah. And, you know, love your NHS system. I totally didn't understand it as a foreigner. And I totally didn't understand what my rights were, you know, being in Scotland as an American citizen, you know, somebody who wasn't even from that country. I had no idea, you know, what to do. Mm -hmm. And so I was very confused and I was trying to figure myself out, um, And, you know, that confusing part uh, took me a long time to figure out, well, why am I so confused? You know, why, why don't I know what to do when, you know, frankly speaking, I'm a decently privileged, you know, white woman, right? I have a lot of privilege. I have a lot of forward to do an investigation, to get medical care, to tell my parents, but I chose not to report. I chose not to do anything. Um, And, you know, that troubled me you know, asking myself, why didn't I do anything? And so, you know, after college, after I decided not to kind of go into academia, that puzzled me. And, and I wanted to dive deep into why didn't I report? Yeah. And, and thinking about myself as a, you know, like as a, as a decently privileged white woman, you know, why didn't I report? And what does that mean for everybody else, you know, who, who has less privilege than me, which is, you know, a lot of people, and their inability to report. And if, if even someone with my privilege was not able to report, then there is no chance for any other individual out there who is afraid of law enforcement, who is undocumented, you know, who's in the LGBTQ population where they you know, don't think anyone will believe them that it could ever happen. You know, those are the people that I started thinking about. And I started thinking about why can't I report? There has to be a problem. And, you know, if there's a problem for me, this must be something that is impacting millions and millions of people all across the globe. And I mm. want to solve that. Mm. Do you think it would have been different had you been in America when that happened, the sort of place that you were familiar with? Good question. No one ever asked me that. And I really like that question. Oh, I think it would have been different. I think it would have been different. I don't know if I would have gone to the police. Um, but I think that I would have told people I felt so isolated and alone being in a foreign country where I knew no one at the time. I was only at the time I, I was only there for about four weeks, right? So four weeks into moving into a new country, I, I kind of knew people, but really didn't know anyone yet. I was just trying to 
get to meet new friends. Mm -hmm. I think that if it would have happened in America, I would have reached out for more assistance because I have a, you know, a broader friend group. I have my family that's over there. Yeah. But I think because it happened in a foreign country, I felt I, I felt really isolated and alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's sort of continue the story. I'm still really intrigued uh, on the basis that, as we've said already, you know, some people, things happen in their lives. Um, they see an issue and they sort of turn it into something. Um, and, and, and after it's been turned into something, it sort of feels or sounds like it, it, it all made sense and it was quite simple to do. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm just imagining, you know, if I was you in your situation thinking about wanting to do something to help people and to also help, you know, to move through it myself, I still can't imagine what, what my next steps would be. <laughs> we know the end result or we're getting to the end result, but you know, the sort of, how do you, how do you, what do you do first is I guess my next question. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I did in like starting the company is also look at what is the first thing that any sexual assault survivor has to do. Um, you know, thinking about that first couple hours after the assault, right? Which is the most time sensitive portion where in your mind, you're like, Oh, what do I do? You know, my mind is spinning. And that's also, by the way, what happens when you start a company, right? You're like, where do I start? What do I look at? Do I do this? Do I do that? It's the same thing. You know, your mind is spinning and you have to try to position it in a place that you can do at least one thing. The first thing that I did is look at what happens within the first 24 to 48 to 72 hours after an assault, which is something called a sexual assault evidence collection kit. Um, that is something that I did not complete, um, that a lot of survivors don't complete. And, you know, what I did first in starting the company is I ordered one of the kits online. I took the kit, I dumped it out on my floor, and I started looking at it. And I, I wish I, you know, I wish podcasts had, you know, videos or pictures, but it's basically tons of paper, tons yeah. and tons of paperwork, no technology. It's really ugly. It looks like filing your taxes or going to, you know, the DMV to get a license, right? It is ridiculous. It is, you know, because it is government created, it's not beautiful. It's not pretty. There is no consumer process. And so I dumped it out on the floor. And the first thing that I did in starting a company is, you know, when, he, when the physical act of dumping it out, you know, stated to me, oh my God, you know, we have to make this better, right? Um, and, yeah. and that's kind of, you know, what I started thinking. And it's the same thing that a sexual assault survivor is going to, you know, think is like, if you were, if I said, hey, you've just been sexually assaulted now, here's all this paperwork and process, you know, that you have to do, you're like, you know what? Nope, I'm not going to do that, which is totally fair. You don't want to be over-processed when you're also emotional. And so we wanted to say, let's look at this, let's dump this out, let's make it easier, which is, you know, from a sexual assault survivor standpoint, the best possible thing that you can do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, yeah, that makes complete sense. You know, let, let, let's look at what sort of exists currently and, and see if we can do something better with it. How, how did you then make that happen? How were you, did you um, self-fund it? Did you go to get investors? How, how, did, how did that then sort of go from there? 
Yeah, so the first thing that we did was go to an accelerator program called mm -hmm. Alchemist Accelerator. And I highly recommend for anyone thinking of an idea. Um, you know, really, before even Alchemist Accelerator, the first thing we did was talk to a bunch of people and, and ask, is this a good idea? Which, <laughs> which I think is a really good thing that you should do. Don't, you know, make it an echo chamber where it's like, I think this is a good idea, so I'm going to do it. Like, talk to people. Mm -hmm. And if you get, like, five to ten people that are like, hey, this is a very interesting idea, then, you know, explore it a little bit more. And so part of that exploration process was um, developing an application to go into an accelerator. And, you know, what an accelerator does really, really well, not only by investing in you, but also teaching you exactly what your business model needs to be, how to find initial sales, how to, you know, reach venture scalability. Those are kind of the things that the accelerator taught, you know, us. So they initially invested in us and then they taught us a bunch of things that made me a lot stronger as a company and as a person and as a founder. Mm. Um, and then, you know, uh, kind of fast forward to today, we've raised over half a million dollars and hopefully soon to be over a million dollars. Um, and, that's kind of, that's kind of where we started. But I, I mean, I put a lot of money when I first started this, you know, you definitely should in the first couple months self fund, you know, in order to really explore the idea out and in order to make sure that, you know, it is something that people are going to want. Mm -hmm. How difficult was that to determine given the sort of taboo um, and the sensitivities around this? Cause you know, many people, uh, well, I hope it's not many, but I'm sure it is, have been in that situation, have been um, sexually assaulted and, and haven't told anybody or haven't certainly gone to your, the authorities and so on. So asking people for their views from people who would have been your target market, if you like, I can imagine wasn't that easy because some people wouldn't have, you know, even been prepared to accept that, that they had any experience that could help you sort of thing it's very difficult it depends on the person um you know i find that there are a lot of women out there that are not ready to talk about this as freely and openly as i am right yeah um and it becomes something where it's very difficult to to in investment in sales you know whatever conversation right to really get them comfortable with something that is uncomfortable. You know, I, I can walk into a meeting and talk about rape and sexual assault and this and that, and you know, no big deal, right? It, it is no big deal for me to talk about it very nonchalantly with no emotion really behind it. But it is one of those topics where you enter certain meetings and people's guard immediately goes up and you can't get any information out of them. They don't want to talk about it moving forward which becomes very difficult for understanding whether or not the product is good, whether or not you're able to get investment, you know, all these things, it takes very specific people that you need to talk to in order to push an idea like this forward. Mm -hmm. I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, a lot of sort of social media shares nowadays start with that sort of, um, you know, warning trigger sort of situation sort of thing. And I, I guess that's part of the, the issue from your point of view, you go into a, a room of people not knowing whether there's people in the room that have had an experience that's going to 
really make that conversation difficult um, before you've even started. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, you know, from my point of view, I would have hoped that they wouldn't have taken the initial meeting, yes. you know, at all, right? Like, why even bother taking the initial meeting if, if I would trigger them? Because I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, no. I don't want to put them in a place where they're there emotionally. But I think a lot of people also don't realize, you know, in the moment, like over an email, right? If, if talking about the subject is going to trigger them. And as soon as they start talking to me and they start hearing about what happened to me and what happened to friends of mine and, and the reason why I started this company, you know, that is, is very triggering to them. And, you know, oftentimes people will accept initial meetings only to on the meeting have to, you know, cut it short, you know, or, or I can see them, you know, not really looking at me or, or kind of going off in a different direction because it is a very uncomfortable topic. Mm-hmm. So reflecting now on the whole thing about uh, starting a business that, that's really sort of something that's close to your heart and very much part of your experience, what, what do you think the sort of advantages, the reasons to do that are and what are the flip side, you know, the bits that where it makes it harder. So I like to, and I, I, I was talking about this last night. Um, I like to call it, you know, what, when you take your trauma or you take something that happened to you and you make it into a company, you run into a problem of being like a, a kind of like a doll with certain catchphrases. So on a day-to-day basis, you know, I'm like one of those dolls with like a string in the back that you pull out. And then I say like 14 different catchphrases each day, right? Where I'm like, I was sexually assaulted in this and this is what happened to me, right? Um, And so I think that that's kind of the flip side and the negative of using trauma as a way to start a company is that you will start to realize that you become like this trauma doll where you're like, you're trauma Barbie. And if you pull trauma Barbie string, she'll say, you know, she'll talk about her trauma and instant and rattle off facts, you know, about rape, right? And it, it becomes something where do you really want to be, um, there's so many things that you can do in life that don't revolve taking your trauma and turning it into a business. Do you really want to turn into the person that, you know, has that string attached to the back that is at any moment forced to reveal very, very personal details? Yeah. I'm personally fine with it, but that's my warning, right? Um, And then on the flip side, I think it becomes a lot realer in terms of purpose. And, you know, starting a company and being an entrepreneur is extremely hard. And if you are fighting for something that is so personal for you, it's a lot easier to continue going on the days where you face massive rejections, because Mm -hmm. you know, you're fighting for a personal cause that is near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was running a I don't know, like if I was a plumber, right, (laughs) you know, Um, I would be like, why, you know, like, where's my heart in, you know, doing plumbing, right? There is no, there's no moral, there's no backstory, there's no, you know, nothing to really make me be a better plumber. And so that would probably make me quit plumbing. But I, I could never imagine quitting what I'm doing now, because it is so integral to the person that I am today. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that really sort of strong feeling of, of purpose. But as you say, on the other side, almost that sort of desensitization of, of what happened, which could be really positive, but also you, I guess, wonder sometimes whether 
um, it, it, it's become a, a sort of story that you tell yourself of a near um, because that's what you have to do. As you said, you, there's somebody's pulling that string and you have to come out with whatever you come out with as well. So yeah, really such a sort of um, double-edged sword, I guess, to think of yet another metaphor, cliche and everything else. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so tell us what, what sort of day-to-day it looks like now um, in the business. What stage are you at in terms of the development of it? So we're getting ready to launch the company um, and uh, fully launch, so start piloting our product um, and, and start you know, doing a lot of stress testing around logistics. But what that really means is my day is spent in front of a computer and talking to people all day. Um, you know, not, not as lovely as, as individuals like you, usually less lovely individuals kind of, you know, talking about shipping costs or manufacturing or, Hey, you know, our printer is down or, you know, like things like that, as well as I talk to investors a lot, which is incredibly time consuming and emotionally draining. Um, but that's kind of my life. You know, it's not glamorous to be a CEO. I think maybe it used to be glamorous before COVID, but I mean, my day is spent looking at my email and on like Zoom calls all day long. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, wearing my pajamas, basically, (laughs) right? Um, Going in, you know, grumpily, like heating up frozen food, bringing it to my desk and continuing on until like six, you know, seven, eight p.m. at night. It is not a glamorous thing. Um, I wish it was a glamorous thing, but it's one of the things of, of running a company specifically during COVID is you have to get very comfortable with, you know, sitting in front of a camera all day. Yes. Yeah. It has it has made some changes I guess so do you think you'd be doing a lot more traveling if if you weren't having to stay at home would you be having face-to-face meetings mostly yeah Mm. I miss it too so much like the energy that you can get out of somebody when you're sitting face-to-face with them and you're feeding off of their energy they're feeding off of yours and you're going back to back to back that is what I miss I mean that's what a lot of my life was before COVID yeah. You know, truthfully, uh, there are some nice things about doing things kind of online. Like I don't have to commute, you know, anymore, right? Um, dramas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can be in my and you know I can go like from the waist up, look good. From the waist down, nothing, right? Um, and so that is the positive, you know. But there is some, there is some nicety about you know, being in New York City, which is where I was before COVID, and running from cafe to cafe to office building, back to my office, you know, to doing something on the whiteboard, to taking photos, to doing this, to feeling like your life is is going, you know, 100 miles an hour, feels really exciting. And even though, you know, I'm not doing that right now, there are things that, you know, are going 100 miles an hour in our company, but they don't feel as exciting because I'm, I'm don't have that in-person aspect that I used to have. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so do you, but do you think, as you say, without that sort of rushing around, dashing around thing, you've had more time to, to get the stuff done. I mean, did you think, I, I look at what, what I did at the beginning when I was 
in lockdown um and it was all it seemed quite hectic and then you know life has gone into a, a routine of whatever and I, I'm sort of in the position now of wondering how I'm ever going to fit all those other things that I stopped doing back into my life because I don't seem to have any time even though I'm not doing lots of the stuff I used to do uh, have we just filled our time with a load of zoom meetings or something <laughs> I think so like my calendar is 10 times worse than it used to be like I I have like 13 meetings like you know 13 to like 16 meetings per day Oh Only because I can, right? Yeah. Like, you know, because I can go like 15 meetings here, 15 meetings here, you know, 15 minute, 15 minute, right? Um, and, you know, I don't have that travel time. I don't have that commute that I used to worry about. And so I think it'll be di like, well, not difficult, impossible. There's no way that I could have as many meetings when, you know, real life starts back up again mm. because there's no way to, I mean, book a meeting with like five minutes between each meeting there's you can't do that <laughs> even in new york <laughs> yeah even in new york you would get stuck on the subway a homeless man would yell at you you'd be like oh you know excuse me then my metro card wouldn't work like logistics would end up not allowing you to do that yeah 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 <laughs> so aside from all these meetings how, how do you manage to get done what you need to get done Oh, um, I, <laughs> lots of caffeine. Um, I, I, I got recently into five hour energy, which is basically a very shit drink that they only sell in gas stations, um, for like truckers going on, you know, long distance road trips. That's basically like where I have to be in order to get all my work done is, is so much caffeine because it's also, I feel it's very rude to actually do work when you're talking to people. Yeah. Um, you know, on Zoom, people can hear when you're clicking around. Like, you know? Yeah. So every time that I've tried to do both, try <laughs> to get, you know, work done when I'm on a meeting, yeah. you know, you can see that my eyes aren't paying attention to you and you're hearing like click, 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 click on my keyboard. Yeah. So I, I usually have to wait until all my meetings are done to even begin the work that I am have to do because I, I can't concentrate if not. And it's, it's rude if I do both. Yes. Yeah. So are you doing this all very single handedly um, aside from obviously you're investing and so on, or, or are you outsourcing or delegating parts of it? We thankfully have a lot of people on our team to make my life a lot easier. Yeah. So I, um, I have an amazing co-founder. Her name is Liesl, um, first generation immigrant from Nepal. Absolutely amazing woman who, you know, is kind of the, you know, kind of the, the darkness whenever I have to be light and whenever I'm dark, he can be light, right? Um, which is something that's so amazing that I have a partner in crime that can help me with, yep. with a lot of things. And then Frankly speaking, I have an amazing like operational support task, you know, so I have a chief of staff who is so amazing that, you know, any single day, even if it was right now, there was something that came up, I could go on Slack and I could message him and be like, I need you to do this immediately. And he would. And so that's kind of how I get around doing a lot of like paperwork -y stuff is having somebody who I really trust to do 90% of the work. 
And then I usually come in at the very end to check it and kind of, you know, mattify it, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, bring it up to the standard that it needs to be. But I have a lot of people that help me get, you know, 80 to 90% of the way done with a lot of the work. So all I have to do is come in at the very end. Mm-hmm. And how did you develop that as a skill? Because, you know, there's, uh, aside from what I do here with Power to Live More, I, I work in uh, corporate around employee engagement and uh, talk about leadership on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of poor leaders out there. <laughs> there's a lot of people who don't surround themselves with good people, who don't want the other people to be as good as them and all that sort of stuff. It sounds from what you've just said, just in, you know, five sentences, that you've built a great team around you who are really talented and, and enable you to do the bits that you need to do and so on. You're, you're still quite young and, and, you know, your background wasn't in leadership. It was in science, yeah. <laughs> albeit Mars <laughs> and space travel. Um, but what, you know, so, you know, so you sort of were almost a rocket scientist. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would, I would make fun. So my background was like in healthcare and like, and, you know, um, uh, space, right? So I would always make fun, you know, like the quote that they say where it's like, oh, you can be a neurosurgeon or a rocket scientist. Yes. My, yeah. my whole thing was, why not both? Do not both. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, you did that, but now you've got a, a, an organization and you've got a team of people um, and you're, you're talking about them in, in really sort of enlightened leadership terms from my experience. How, how did you develop that? How did that come about? Oh, um, you know, at the beginning of the company, I thought I was a lone wolf, right? Mm -hmm. And not to trust anybody. And I always knew best. And I learned the hard way, you know, through a lot of, a lot of failures, you know, we had as a company, where if you put all of the burden on yourself, you, you tend to fail even harder, you know? Um, So when, you know, the first instance of me delegating and and trying to be a leader was realizing, you know, my co-founder was there for me. Um, And the way that I realized that is by us both going through an incredibly anxious and, you know, traumatic time when we started the company and, and all the crazy stuff that happened, you know, when you first start a company and being able to kind of be, you know, in the ditch together, right? We were fighting together. We were both you know, kind of trying to crawl up for air. And because we were both in it together, you know, I realized that if you can, if you can find somebody that is there for you in the very, very bottom, you know, where everything feels like it's going wrong and you feel like you're going to quit and give up, then that is, that is how you find good people. And so that is how I've continued to find good people and, and, and really figure out who is a good person, who's not a good person is by essentially, you know, showing them that it's going to be a really hard work, you know, and it's going to be, it's not a very easy road ahead, you know, to do this type of work and seeing if they get scared and they leave. And, and if they don't get scared and leave, you know, even with the most crazy thing that we throw at them, that tends to be the people that stick around forever. Um, and, and that's what I've tried to do as a leader is I've tried to really figure out in the first couple months, is this person going to, you know, be able to handle the stress and pressure of, of running a company and, and being in the, you know, top, 
you know, 10 people of, of starting a company and usually you, you figure it out in like two weeks, not even a couple months. You figure it out in two weeks if the person is, is there and they really want to be there and they really want to make a difference. And so that's kind of how I, I did it is, you know, I figured out who are the people that are going to be with me through the good and the bad, you know, just like a relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then sticking with those people and, and trying to bring them up in the organization to make them feel like they are important, which, you know, they 100% are. Mm -hmm. A really, really good example of, of sort of learning from experience and, and self-reflection, I think. So thank you for sharing that. How else have you ensured that you keep learning and, and improving yourself so that you're in a position to be able to take this company forward? I try to surround myself with people that have failed a lot and have learned a lot. <laughs> you know, um, somebody the other day was like, hey, Madison, who are the adults in the room, you know, for your company? And, you know, my answer to that is I, I surround myself with people that have 20, 30 plus years of experience in fail failing, right? And, and that's a really good thing for me to continue learning is by surrounding myself with people that have, have been in my shoes and not always you know, completely done a good job, or they might have failed. Maybe they, they didn't, you know, do well with their company, maybe their company shut down. And I spend a lot of time trying to learn from other people and trying to understand, you know, what happens and, and how can I not go wrong? I, I also spend a lot of time reading about failures in companies, you know, during COVID, there were a lot of people that stepped down. Um, you know, in their organization for one reason or another, looking at the reason why they stepped down and looking at bad press that happened around them stepping down and why they had to step down, you know, really defined who I wanted to be as a CEO and a leader and saying, you know, these were massively successful companies, you know, venture backed. They had the CEO, oftentimes a woman step down. I want to make sure that I'm not that person. And so I wanted to learn from the failures of others to make sure that I do not repeat those. Mm, mm, that's a really good point so just moving into the last couple of questions the first one is what about those days when it all goes horribly wrong how do you deal with those days oh um yeah I mean not even days where it goes horribly wrong but sometimes it's not it's just days where nothing happens right um where nothing good happens nothing bad happens but you're just kind of there. You're sitting in this, you know, purgatory waiting for something to happen. You know, when, when I have a day where everything bad is happening, I'm actually a lot more on the ball than I am when nothing is happening at all. Um, I kind of really like when things are happening badly and there is a crisis to manage because I can fully use that adrenaline to go and solve that problem. But I think, you know, a bigger question is what do you do in those moments where it's not necessarily everything is blowing up around you, but when nothing is really blowing up, but also nothing is moving, you know, you're not getting more sales. You're not getting more investment. You know, people are leaving your company. Maybe they don't want to be there anymore. What do you do in those moments? And I've been trying to spend those moments in, in reflection, you know, so taking a moment back, not, actively saying I need to problem solve I need to crisis manage but being able to take myself back try to reflect on the problem usually that means taking a couple days off you know taking some long walks trying to do some meditation 
to really figure out what is the crux of the problem and how do I get to the answer. And that takes being able to also step away from it because oftentimes when you're too close to the problem and everything is blowing up around you or maybe things aren't moving, it's very difficult to find an answer when you're standing so close to it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And what about those days where you get to live more? And that's where I say you get to do more of the things that you want to do and less of the stuff that you don't want to do. What do those days look like for you? Those look like days where I am like dancing around my room and I am, <laughs> I am excited and I, I turn on really loud disco music and I go on long car rides and I blast the radio and I go and get food that I like. You know, those, whenever I have a win in the company, I try to celebrate those by doing the things that I really like and, and rewarding myself with, you know, with dancing, with, you know, being nice to my significant other, which I'm not always that nice because <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard to be a CEO and also be nice to the person around you. Um, but, you know, rewarding myself, rewarding the people around me and, and trying to actually, you know, say to myself, hey, it's, it's, it's okay for you to stop for a second. And it's okay for you to have, you know, some more time for yourself to even enjoy, you know, going thrift shopping or, you know, which is what my biggest joy in life is, right? Um, that's kind of how I celebrate and how I, I live more, right? Is, mm -hmm. is being able to say it's okay to take a break. It's okay to go and live your life and have things that are not work related. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky when I have the opportunity to do that. Yes. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you, Madison. It's been great interviewing you. Tell us more about how people can contact you and find out more about you. So you're more than happy to add me on LinkedIn. I'm always on LinkedIn. If you search Madison Campbell, and you find a girl with blonde hair, you'll see me. Um, <laughs> um, also follow me on Twitter, go to madisoncampbell.com um, to kind of read more about what we're doing or follow me on any of my socials. Lovely. Thanks, Madison. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. All this information is available in the show notes. If you go to powertolivemore.com forward slash, in this case, 183, then you'll find them there. And this week, I want to talk to you about a download that I sent out on my email on Wednesday. I do a weekly email with some resources and usually a download. And this week's download was about changing a bad habit. It was a worksheet to help you to think about how to change a habit. So it is basically a bit of a sort of self-journaling exercise and asking you a number of questions. So the idea is that you think about what it is you want to change and then do some thinking, thinking around why you want to change this particular habit and how you'll feel and what your life will look like once you've changed that habit, once you've broken that habit or changed it to something else. And then setting a deadline. So you're going to start changing the habit by whatever date or rather on that date is when you're going to start and how you're going to replace it. So rather than stopping that habit, what are you going to do differently? What are you going to do instead of that? So uh, it might be that, um, I don't know, you drink 
wine every night and you want to stop drinking wine every night so you decide that instead you're going to drink sparkling water that's what you're going to replace that with so you're still going to make a a sort of ritual out of having that drink but it's going to be water instead of wine isn't there some sort of bible parable there (laughs) oh no that's the other way around um so you then answer a question about when you're most susceptible to this so what triggers you what makes you more inclined to do the thing that you don't want to do and what you're going to do when that happens to stop you doing that um so thinking about the wine and water scenario um you know is it that uh you i don't know haven't created a nice little ritual around having perhaps some sort of aperitif for your dinner with some sparkling water um you just sort of say oh well you know whatever have this wine and then off it goes sort of thing so can you create a little ritual uh to overcome that urge at that particular moment so if you think that that document would be uh helpful for you then if you go to the resource section on my website then you'll see that there's a downloads section there and you'll be able to download this pdf uh called change a bad habit so that's powertolivemore.com And if you go to the resources section, as I say, under the downloads, you'll see that there. Again, the show notes are at powertolivemore.com forward slash 183. And we look forward to speaking to you next week. Use your power to live more. 